0: Why is HRV important? When our autonomic nervous system is well-balanced, we have a reasonable degree of control over our response to minor frustrations and disappointments, enabling us to calmly assess what's going on when we feel insulted or left out. Effective arousal modulation gives us control over our impulses and emotions. As long as we manage to stay calm, we can choose how we want to respond. Individuals with poorly modulated autonomic nervous systems are easily thrown off balance both mentally and physically. Since the autonomic nervous system organizes arousal in both body and brain, poor HRV, that is, a lack of fluctuation in heart rate in response to breathing, not only has negative effects on thinking and feeling, but also on how the body responds to stress. Lack of coherence between breathing and heart rate makes people vulnerable to a variety of physical illnesses such as heart disease and cancer, in addition to mental problems such as depression and PTSD. In order to study this issue further, we acquired a machine to measure HRV and started to put bands around the chests of research subjects with and without PTSD to record the depth and rhythm of their breathing while little monitors attached to their earlobes picked up their pulse. After we tested about 60 subjects, it became clear that people with PTSD have unusually low HRV. In other words, in PTSD, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are out of sync. This added a new twist to the complicated trauma story. We confirmed that yet another brain regulatory system was not functioning as it should. Failure to keep this system in balance is one explanation why traumatized people like Annie are so vulnerable to overrespond to relatively minor stresses. The biological systems that are meant to help us cope with the vagaries of life fail to meet the challenge. Our next scientific question was, is there a way for people to improve their HRV? I had a personal incentive to explore this question as I had discovered that my own HRV was not nearly robust enough to guarantee long-term physical health. An internet search turned up studies showing that marathon running markedly increased HRV. Sadly, that was of little use, since neither I nor our patients were good candidates for the Boston Marathon. Google also listed 17,000 yoga sites claiming that yoga improved HRV but we were unable to find any supporting studies. Yogis may have developed a wonderful method to help people find internal balance and health, but back in 1998, not much work had been done on evaluating their claims with the tools of the Western medical tradition. Since then, however, scientific methods have confirmed that changing the way one breathes can improve problems with anger, depression, and anxiety, and that yoga can positively affect such wide-ranging medical problems As high blood pressure, elevated stress hormone secretion, asthma, and lower back pain. However, no psychiatric journal had published a scientific study of yoga for PTSD until our own work appeared in 2014. As it happened, a few days after our internet search, a lanky yoga teacher named David Emerson walked through the front door of the trauma center. He told us that he developed a modified form of hatha yoga to deal with PTSD, And that he'd been holding classes for veterans at a local vet center and for women in the Boston area rape crisis center. Would we be interested in working with him? Dave's visit eventually grew into a very active yoga program. And in due course, we received the first grant from the National Institutes of Health to study the effects of yoga on PTSD. Dave's work also contributed to my developing my own regular yoga practice and becoming a frequent teacher at Kripalu a yoga center in the Berkshire Mountains in western Massachusetts. Along the way, my own HRV pattern improved as well. In choosing to explore yoga to improve HRV, we were taking an expansive approach to the problem. We could simply have used any of a number of reasonably priced handheld devices that train people to slow their breathing and synchronize it with their heart rate, resulting in a state of cardiac coherence Today, there are a variety of apps that can help improve HRV with the aid of a smartphone. In our clinic, we have workstations where patients can train their HRV, and I urge all my patients who, for one reason or another, cannot practice yoga, martial arts, or Qigong to train themselves at home. Exploring Yoga Our decision to study yoga led us deeper into trauma's impact on the body, our first experimental yoga classes met in a room generously donated by a nearby studio. David Emerson and his colleagues Dana Moore and Jody Carey volunteered as instructors, and my research team figured out how we could best measure yoga's effects on psychological functioning. We put flyers in neighborhood supermarkets and laundromats to advertise our classes and interviewed dozens of people who called in response. Ultimately, we selected 37 women who had severe trauma histories and who had already received many years of therapy without much benefit. Half the volunteers were selected at random for the yoga group, while the others would receive a well-established mental health treatment, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, DBT, which teaches people how to apply mindfulness to stay calm and in control. Finally, we commissioned an engineer at MIT To build us a complicated computer that could measure HRV simultaneously in eight different people. In each study group, there were multiple classes, each with no more than eight participants. While yoga significantly improved arousal problems in PTSD and dramatically improved our subjects' relationships to their bodies, with comments like, I now take care of my body, and I listen to what my body needs, Eight weeks of DBT did not affect their arousal levels or PTSD symptoms. Thus, our interest in yoga gradually evolved from a focus on learning whether yoga can change HRV, which it can, to helping traumatized people learn to comfortably inhabit their tortured bodies. Over time, we also started a yoga program for Marines at Camp Lejeune and have worked successfully with various other programs to implement yoga programs for veterans with PTSD. Even though we have no formal research data on the veterans, it looks as if yoga is at least as effective for them as it has been for the women in our studies. All yoga programs consist of a combination of breathing practices known as pranayama, stretches or postures known as asanas, and meditation. Different schools of yoga emphasize variations in intensity and focus within these core components. For example, variations in the speed and depth of breathing and use of the mouth, nostrils, and throat all produce different results, and some techniques have powerful effects on energy. In our classes, we keep the approach simple. Many of our patients are barely aware of their breath. So learning to focus on the in- and out-breath, to notice whether the breath was fast or slow, and to count breaths in some poses can be a significant accomplishment. We gradually introduce a limited number of classic postures. The emphasis is not on getting the poses right, but on helping the participants notice which muscles are active at different times. The sequences are designed to create a rhythm between tension and relaxation something we hope they will begin to perceive in their day-to-day lives. We don't teach meditation as such, but we do foster mindfulness by encouraging students to observe what is happening in different parts of their body from pose to pose. In our studies, we keep seeing how difficult it is for traumatized people to feel completely relaxed and physically safe in their bodies. We measure our subjects' HRV by placing tiny monitors on their arms during Shavasana, the pose at the end of most classes during which practitioners lie face up, palms up, arms and legs relaxed. Instead of relaxation, we picked up too much muscle activity to get a clear signal. Rather than going into a state of quiet repose, our students' muscles often continue to prepare them to fight unseen enemies. A major challenge in recovering from trauma remains being able to achieve a state of total relaxation and safe surrender. Learning Self-Regulation After seeing the success of our pilot studies, we established a therapeutic yoga program at the trauma center. I thought that this might be an opportunity for Annie to develop a more caring relationship with her body, and I urged her to try it. The first class was difficult. Merely being given an adjustment by the instructor was so terrifying that she went home and slashed herself. Her malfunctioning alarm system interpreted even a gentle touch on her back as an assault. At the same time, Annie realized that yoga might offer her a way to liberate herself from the constant sense of danger that she felt in her body. With my encouragement, she returned the following week. Annie had always found it easier to write about her experiences than to talk about them. After her second yoga class, she wrote to me, I don't know all of the reasons that yoga terrifies me so much, but I do know that it will be an incredible source of healing for me, and that is why I am working on myself to try it. Yoga is about looking inward instead of outward and listening to my body, and a lot of my survival has been geared around never doing those things. Going to the class today, my heart was racing, and part of me really wanted to turn around, but then I just kept putting one foot in front of the other until I got to the door and went in. After the class, I came home and slept for four hours. This week I tried doing yoga at home, and the words came to me, Your body has things to say. I said back to myself, I will try to listen." A few days later, Annie wrote, Some thoughts during and after yoga today. It occurred to me how disconnected I must be from my body when I cut it. When I was doing the poses, I noticed that my jaw and the whole area from where my legs end to my belly button is where I am tight, tense and holding the pain and memories. Sometimes you have asked me where I feel things, and I can't even begin to locate them. But today, I felt those places very clearly, and it made me want to cry in a gentle kind of way. The following month, both of us went on vacation, and, invited to stay in touch, Annie wrote to me again. I've been doing yoga on my own in a room that overlooks the lake. I'm continuing to read the book you let me, Stephen Cope's wonderful Yoga and the Quest for the True Self. It's really interesting to think about how much I have been refusing to listen to my body, which is such an important part of who I am. Yesterday, when I did yoga, I thought about letting my body tell me the story it wants to tell, and in the hip opening poses there was a lot of pain and sadness. I don't think my mind is going to let really vivid images come up as long as I am away from home, which is good. I think now about how unbalanced I have been, and about how hard I have tried to deny the past, which is a part of my true self. There is so much I can learn if I am open to it, and then I won't have to fight myself every minute of every day. One of the hardest yoga positions for Annie to tolerate was one that's often called happy baby, in which you lie on your back with your knees deeply bent and the soles of your feet pointing to the ceiling, while holding your toes with your hands. This rotates the pelvis into a wide open position. It's easy to understand why this would make a rape victim feel extremely vulnerable. Yet as long as happy baby or any posture that resembles it precipitates intense panic, it is difficult to be intimate. Learning how to comfortably assume happy baby is a challenge for many patients in our yoga classes. Getting to know me. Cultivating interoception. One of the clearest lessons from contemporary neuroscience is that our sense of ourselves is anchored in a vital connection with our bodies. We don't truly know ourselves unless we can feel and interpret our physical sensations. We need to register and act on these sensations to navigate safely through life. While numbing or compensatory sensation-seeking may make life tolerable, the price you pay is that you lose awareness of what is going on inside your body, and, with that, the sense of being fully, sensually, alive. In Chapter 6, I discussed alexithymia, the technical term for not being able to identify what is going on inside oneself. People who suffer from alexithymia tend to feel physically uncomfortable, but cannot describe exactly what the problem is. As a result, they often have multiple vague and distressing physical complaints that doctors can't diagnose. In addition, they can't figure out for themselves what they're really feeling about any given situation, or what makes them feel better or worse. This is the result of numbing, which keeps them from anticipating and responding to the ordinary demands of their bodies in quiet, mindful ways. At the same time, It muffles the everyday sensory delights of experiences like music, touch, and light, which imbue life with value. Yoga turned out to be a terrific way to regain a relationship with the interior world, and with it a caring, loving, sensual relationship to the self. If you are not aware of what your body needs, you can't take care of it. If you don't feel hunger, you can't nourish yourself. If you mistake anxiety for hunger, you may eat too much. And if you can't feel when you're satiated, you'll keep eating. This is why cultivating sensory awareness is such a critical aspect of trauma recovery. Most traditional therapies downplay or ignore the moment-to-moment shifts in our inner sensory world. But these shifts carry the essence of the organism's responses, the emotional states that are imprinted in the body's chemical profile, in the viscera, in the contraction of the striated muscles of the face, throat, trunk, and limbs. Traumatized people need to learn that they can tolerate their sensations, befriend their inner experiences, and cultivate new action patterns. In yoga, you focus your attention on your breathing and on your sensations moment to moment. You begin to notice the connection between your emotions and your body, perhaps how anxiety about doing a pose actually throws you off balance you begin to experiment with changing the way you feel. Will taking a deep breath relieve the tension in your shoulder? Will focusing on your exhalations produce a sense of calm? Simply noticing what you feel fosters emotional regulation, and it helps you to stop trying to ignore what is going on inside you. As I often tell my students, the two most important phrases in therapy, as in yoga, are, notice that, and what happens next? Once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than with fear, everything shifts. Body awareness also changes your sense of time. Trauma makes you feel as if you are stuck forever in a helpless state of horror. In yoga, you learn that sensations rise to a peak and then fall. For example, if an instructor invites you to enter a particularly challenging pose, you may feel at first a sense of defeat or resistance, anticipating that you won't be able to tolerate the feelings brought up by this particular position. A good yoga teacher will encourage you to just notice any tension while timing what you feel with the flow of your breath. The teacher might say, we'll be holding this position for 10 breaths. This helps you anticipate the end of discomfort, and strengthens your capacity to deal with physical and emotional distress. Awareness that all experience is transitory changes your perspective on yourself. This is not to say that regaining interoception isn't potentially upsetting. What happens when a newly accessed feeling in your chest is experienced as rage, or fear, or anxiety? In our first yoga study, we had a 50% dropout rate, the highest of any study we'd ever done. When we interviewed the patients who'd left, we learned that they had found the program too intense. Any posture that involved the pelvis could precipitate intense panic or even flashbacks to sexual assaults. Intense physical sensations unleashed the demons from the past that had been so carefully kept in check by numbing and inattention. This taught us to go slow, often at a snail's pace. The approach paid off. In our most recent study, only one out of 34 participants did not finish. Yoga and the Neuroscience of Self-Awareness During the past few years, brain researchers such as my colleagues Sarah Lazar and Brita Holtzel at Harvard have shown that intense meditation has a positive effect on exactly those brain areas That are critical for physiological self-regulation. In our latest yoga study with six women with histories of profound early trauma, we also found the first indications that 20 weeks of yoga practice increased activation of the basic self-system, the insula, and the medial prefrontal cortex. This research needs much more work, but it opens up new perspectives on how actions that involve noticing and befriending the sensations in our bodies Can produce profound changes in both mind and brain that can lead to healing from trauma. After each of our yoga studies, we asked the participants what effect the classes had had on them. We never mentioned the insula or interoception. In fact, we kept the discussion and explanation to a minimum so that they could focus inward. Here's a sample of their responses. My emotions feel more powerful. Maybe it's just that I can recognize them now. I can express my feelings more because I can recognize them more. I feel them in my body, recognize them, and address them. I now see choices, multiple paths. I can decide, and I can choose my life. It doesn't have to be repeated or be experienced like a child. And finally, I was able to move my body and be in my body in a safe place and without hurting myself or getting hurt. Learning to Communicate People who feel safe in their bodies can begin to translate the memories that previously overwhelmed them into language. After Annie had been practicing yoga three times a week for about a year, she noticed that she was able to talk much more freely to me about what had happened to her. She thought this almost miraculous. One day, when she knocked over a glass of water I got up from my chair and approached her with a Kleenex box, saying, Let me clean that up. This precipitated a brief, intense panic reaction. She was quickly able to contain herself, though, and explained why those particular words were so upsetting to her. They were what her father would say after he'd raped her. Annie wrote to me after that session, Did you notice that I have been able to say the words out loud? I didn't have to write them down to tell you what was happening. I didn't lose trust in you because you said words that triggered me. I understood that the words were a trigger and not terrible words that no one should say. Annie continues to practice yoga and to write to me about her experiences. Today I went to a morning yoga class at my new yoga studio. The teacher talked about breathing to the edge of where we can and then noticing that edge. She said that if we notice our breath, we are in the present because we can't breathe in the future or the past. So it felt so amazing to me to be practicing breathing in that way after we had just talked about it, like I had been given a gift. Some of the poses can be triggering for me. Two of them were today, one where your legs are up frog-like and one where you are doing really deep breathing into your pelvis. I felt the beginning of panic, especially in the breathing pose, like, oh no, That's not a part of my body I want to feel. But then I was able to stop myself and just say, notice that this part of your body is holding experiences, and then just let it go. You don't have to stay there, but you don't have to leave either. Just use it as information. I don't know that I have ever been able to do that in such a conscious way before. It made me think that if I notice without being so afraid, it will be easier for me to believe myself. In another message, Annie reflected on the changes in her life. I slowly learned to just have my feelings, without being hijacked by them. Life is more manageable. I am more attuned to my day and more present in the moment. I am more tolerant of physical touch. My husband and I are enjoying watching movies, cuddling together in bed. A huge step. All this helped me finally feel intimate with my husband. Chapter 17 Putting the Pieces Together Self-Leadership This being human is a guesthouse. Every morning is a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Treat each guest honorably. The dark thought, the shame, the malice meet them at the door laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Rumi A man has as many social selves as there are individuals who recognize him. William James from The Principles of Psychology It was early in my career, and I had been seeing Mary, a shy, lonely, and physically collapsed young woman, for about three months in weekly psychotherapy, dealing with the ravages of her terrible history of early abuse. One day I opened the door to my waiting room and saw her standing there, provocatively, dressed in a miniskirt, her hair dyed flaming red, with a cup of coffee in one hand, and a snarl on her face. You must be Dr. Vanderkolk." She said, my name is Jane and I came to warn you not to believe any of the lies that Mary has been telling you. Can I come in and tell you about her? I was stunned, but fortunately kept myself from confronting Jane and instead heard her out. Over the course of our session, I met not only Jane, but also a hurt little girl and an angry male adolescent. That was the beginning of a long and productive treatment. Mary was my first encounter with Dissociative Identity Disorder, known as DID, which at that time was called Multiple Personality Disorder. As dramatic as its symptoms are, the internal splitting and emergence of distinct identities experienced in DID represent only the extreme end of the spectrum of mental life. The sense of being inhabited by warring impulses or parts is common to all of us, but particularly to traumatized people, who had to resort to extreme measures in order to survive exploring even befriending those parts is an important component of healing desperate times require desperate measures we all know what happens when we feel humiliated we put all our energy into protecting ourselves developing whatever survival strategies we can we may repress our feelings we may get furious and plot revenge. We may decide to become so powerful and successful that nobody can ever hurt us again. Many behaviors that are classified as psychiatric problems, including some obsessions, compulsions, and panic attacks, as well as most self-destructive behaviors, started out as strategies for self-protection. These adaptations to trauma can so interfere with the capacity to function that healthcare providers and patients themselves often believe that full recovery is beyond reach. Viewing these symptoms as permanent disabilities narrows the focus of treatment to finding the proper drug regimen, which can lead to lifelong dependence, as though trauma survivors were like kidney patients on dialysis. It's much more productive to see aggression or depression, arrogance or passivity as learned behaviors. Somewhere along the line, the patient came to believe that he or she can survive only if he or she was tough, invisible or absent, or that it was safer to give up. Like traumatic memories that keep intruding until they are laid to rest, traumatic adaptations continue until the human organism feels safe and integrates all the parts of itself that are stuck in fighting or warding off the trauma. Every trauma survivor I've met is resilient in his or her own way, and every one of their stories inspires awe at how people cope. Knowing how much energy the sheer act of survival requires keeps me from being surprised at the price they often pay—the absence of a loving relationship with their own bodies, minds, and souls. Coping takes its toll. For many children, it's safer to hate themselves than to risk their relationship with their caregivers by expressing anger or by running away. As a result, Abused children are likely to grow up believing that they are fundamentally unlovable. That was the only way their young minds could explain why they were treated so badly. They survive by denying, ignoring, and splitting off large chunks of reality. They forget the abuse. They suppress their rage or despair. They numb their physical sensations. If you were abused as a child, you are likely to have a childlike part living inside you, that is frozen in time, still holding fast to this kind of self-loathing and denial. Many adults who survive terrible experiences are caught in the same trap. Pushing away intense feelings can be highly adaptive in the short run. It may help you preserve your dignity and independence. It may help you maintain focus on critical tasks like saving a comrade, taking care of your kids, or rebuilding your house. The problems come later. After seeing a friend blown up, a soldier may return to civilian life and try to put the experience out of his mind. A protective part of him knows how to be competent at his job and how to get along with colleagues, but he may habitually erupt in rage at his girlfriend or become numb and frozen when the pleasure of surrendering to her touch makes him feel he is losing control. He probably will not be aware that his mind automatically associates passive surrender With the paralysis he felt when his friend was killed. So another protective part steps in to create a diversion. He gets angry and, having no idea what set him off, he thinks he's mad about something his girlfriend did. Of course, if he keeps blowing up at her and subsequent girlfriends, he will become more and more isolated. But he may never realize that a traumatized part is triggered by passivity and that another part an angry manager, is stepping in to protect that vulnerable part. Helping these parts give up their extreme beliefs is how therapy can save people's lives. As we saw in Chapter 13, a central task for recovery from trauma is to learn to live with the memories of the past without being overwhelmed by them in the present. But most survivors, including those who are functioning well, even brilliantly, in some aspects of their lives, face another even greater challenge—reconfiguring a brain-mind system that was constructed to cope with the worst. Just as we need to revisit traumatic memories in order to integrate them, we need to revisit the parts of ourselves that developed the defensive habits that helped us to survive. The Mind is a Mosaic we all have parts. Right now, a part of me feels like taking a nap. Another part wants to keep writing. Still feeling injured by an offensive email message, a part of me wants to hit reply on a stinging put-down, while the different part wants to shrug it off. Most people who know me have seen my intense, sincere, and irritable parts. Some have met the little snarling dog that lives inside me. My children reminisce about going on family vacations with my playful and adventurous parts. When you walk into the office in the morning and see the storm clouds over your boss's head, you know precisely what's coming. That angry part has a characteristic tone of voice, vocabulary, and body posture, so different from yesterday when you shared pictures of your kids. Parts are not just feelings but distinct ways of being, with their own beliefs agendas, and roles in the overall ecology of our lives. How well we get along with ourselves depends largely on our internal leadership skills, how well we listen to our different parts, make sure they feel taken care of, and keep them from sabotaging one another. Parts often come across as absolutes when in fact they represent only one element in a complex constellation of thoughts, emotions, and sensations. If Margaret shouts, I hate you in the middle of an argument, Joe probably thinks she despises him. And in that moment, Margaret might agree. But in fact, only a part of her is angry, and that part temporarily obscures her generous and affectionate feelings, which may well return when she sees the devastation on Joe's face. Every major school of psychology recognizes that people have sub-personalities and gives them different names. In 1890, William James wrote, it must be admitted that the total possible consciousness may be split into parts which coexist but mutually ignore each other and share the objects of knowledge between them. Carl Jung wrote, the psyche is a self-regulating system that maintains its equilibrium just as the body does. The natural state of the human psyche consists in a jostling together of its components and in their contradictory behavior. And the reconciliation of these opposites is a major problem. Thus, the adversary is none other than the other in me. Modern neuroscience has confirmed this notion of the mind as a kind of society. Michael Gazaniga, who conducted pioneering split-brain research, concluded that the mind is composed of semi-autonomous functioning modules, each of which has a special role. In his book, The Social Brain, 1985, he writes, But what of the idea that the self is not a unified being, and there may exist within us several realms of consciousness? From our split-brain studies, the new idea emerges that there are literally several selves, and they do not necessarily converse with each other internally. MIT scientist Marvin Minsky, a pioneer of artificial intelligence, declared, The legend of the single self can only divert us from the target of that inquiry. It can make sense to think there exists inside your brain a society of different minds. Like members of a family, the different minds can work together to help each other, each still having its own mental experiences that the others never know about. Therapists who are trained to see people as complex human beings with multiple characteristics and potentialities can help them explore their system of inner parts and take care of the wounded facets of themselves. There are several such treatment approaches, including the structural dissociation model developed by my Dutch colleagues Ona van der Hart and Ellert Nijenhaus and Atlanta-based Kathy Steele, that is widely practiced in Europe, and Richard Cluft's work in the United States. Twenty years after working with Mary, I met Richard Schwartz, the developer of Internal Family Systems Therapy, known as IFS. It was through his work that Minsky's family metaphor truly came to life for me and offered a systematic way to work with the split off parts that result from trauma. At the core of IFS is the notion that the mind of each of us is like a family in which the members have different levels of maturity, excitability, wisdom, and pain. The parts form a network or system in which change in any one part will affect all the others. The IFS model helped me realize that dissociation occurs on a continuum. In trauma, the self-system breaks down, and parts of the self become polarized and go to war with one another. Self-loathing coexists and fights with grandiosity. Loving care with hatred, numbing and passivity with rage and aggression— These extreme parts bear the burden of the trauma. In IFS, a part is considered not just a passing emotional state or customary thought pattern, but a distinct mental system with its own history, abilities, needs, and worldview. Trauma injects parts with beliefs and emotions that hijack them out of their naturally valuable state. For example, we all have parts that are childlike and fun. When we are abused, these are the parts that are hurt the most, and they become frozen, carrying the pain, terror, and betrayal of abuse. This burden makes them toxic, parts of ourselves that we need to deny at all costs because they are locked away inside. IFS calls them the exiles. At this point, other parts organize to protect the internal family from the exiles. These protectors keep the toxic parts away, but in doing so, they take on some of the energy of the abuser. Critical and perfectionistic managers can make sure we never get close to anyone or drive us to be relentlessly productive. Another group of protectors, which IFS calls firefighters, are emergency responders, acting impulsively whenever an experience triggers an exiled emotion each split-off part holds different memories, beliefs, and physical sensations. Some hold the shame, others the rage, some the pleasure and excitement, another the intense loneliness or the abject compliance. These are all aspects of the abuse experience. The critical insight is that all these parts have a function to protect the self from feeling the full terror of annihilation. Children who act out their pain rather than locking it down are often diagnosed with oppositional defiant behavior, attachment disorder, or conduct disorder. But these labels ignore the fact that rage and withdrawal are only facets of a whole range of desperate attempts at survival. Trying to control the child's behavior while failing to address the underlying issue, the abuse, leads to treatments that are ineffective, at best, and harmful, at worst. As they grow up, their parts do not spontaneously integrate into a coherent personality, but continue to lead a relatively autonomous existence. Parts that are out may be entirely unaware of the other parts of the system. Most of the men I evaluated with regard to their childhood molestation by Catholic priests Took anabolic steroids and spent an inordinate amount of time in the gym pumping iron. These compulsive bodybuilders lived in a masculine culture of sweat, football, and beer where weakness and fear were carefully concealed. Only after they felt safe with me did I meet the terrified kids inside. Patients may also dislike the parts that are out, and the parts that are angry, destructive, or critical. But IFS offers a framework for understanding them and, also important, talking about them in a non-pathologizing way. Recognizing that each part is stuck with burdens from the past and respecting its function in the overall system makes it feel less threatening or overwhelming. As Schwartz states, If one accepts the basic idea that people have an innate drive toward nurturing their own health, this implies that when people have chronic problems, Something gets in the way of accessing inner resources. Recognizing this, the role of therapists is to collaborate rather than teach, confront, or fill holes in your psyche. The first step in this collaboration is to assure the internal system that all parts are welcome and that all of them, even those that are suicidal or destructive, were formed in an attempt to protect the self-system, no matter how much they now seem to threaten it. Self-leadership IFS recognizes that the cultivation of mindful self-leadership is the foundation for healing from trauma. Mindfulness not only makes it possible to survey our internal landscape with compassion and curiosity, but can also actively steer us in the right direction for self-care. All systems—families, organizations, or nations can operate effectively only if they have clearly defined and competent leadership. The internal family is no different. All facets of ourselves need to be attended to. The internal leader must wisely distribute the available resources and supply a vision for the whole that takes all the parts into account. As Richard Swartz explains, the internal system of an abuse victim differs from the non-abuse system With regard to the consistent absence of effective leadership, the extreme rules under which the parts function, and the absence of any consistent balance or harmony. Typically, the parts operate around outdated assumptions and beliefs derived from the childhood abuse, believing, for example, that it is still extremely dangerous to reveal secrets about childhood experiences which were endured. What happens when the self is no longer in charge? IFS calls this blending, a condition in which the self identifies with a part, as in, I want to kill myself, or I hate you. Notice the difference from, a part of me wishes that I were dead, or a part of me triggers when you do that and makes me want to kill you. Schwartz makes two assertions that extend the concept of mindfulness into the realm of active leadership. The first is that this self does not need to be cultivated or developed. Beneath the surface of the protective parts of trauma survivors, there exists an undamaged essence, a self that is confident, curious, and calm, a self that has been sheltered from destruction by the various protectors that have emerged in their efforts to ensure survival. Once those protectors trust that it is safe to separate, the self will spontaneously emerge, and the parts can be enlisted in the healing process. The second assumption is that, rather than being a passive observer, this mindful self can help reorganize the inner system and communicate with the parts in ways that help those parts trust that there is someone inside who can handle things. Again, neuroscience research shows that this is not just a metaphor. Mindfulness increases activation of the medial prefrontal cortex And decreases activation of structures like the amygdala that trigger our emotional responses. This increases our control over the emotional brain. Even more than encouraging a relationship between a therapist and a helpless patient, IFS focuses on cultivating an inner relationship between the self and the various protective parts. In this model of treatment, the self doesn't only witness or passively observe, as in some meditation traditions, It has an active leadership role. The self is like an orchestra conductor who helps all the parts to function harmoniously as a symphony rather than a cacophony. Getting to Know the Internal Landscape The task of the therapist is to help patients separate this confusing blend into separate identities so that they are able to say, This part of me is like a little child, and that part of me is more mature but feels like a victim. They might not like many of these parts, but identifying them makes them less intimidating or overwhelming. The next step is to encourage patients to simply ask each protective part as it emerges to stand back temporarily so that we can see what it is protecting. When this is done again and again, The parts begin to unblend from the self and make space for mindful self-observation. Patients learn to put their fear, rage, or distrust on hold and open up into states of curiosity and self-reflection. From the stable perspective of self, they can begin constructive inner dialogues with their parts. Patients are asked to identify the part involved in the current problem, like feeling worthless, abandoned, or obsessed with vengeful thoughts. As they ask themselves, what inside me feels that way? An image may come to mind. Maybe the depressed part looks like an abandoned child, or an aging man, or an overwhelmed nurse taking care of the wounded. A vengeful part might appear as a combat marine, or a member of a street gang. Next, the therapist asks, how do you feel toward that sad, vengeful, terrified, part of you. This sets the stage for mindful self-observation by separating the you from the part in question. If the patient has an extreme response, like, I hate it, the therapist knows that there is another protective part blended with self. He or she might then ask, see if the part that hates it would step back. Then the protective part is often thanked for its vigilance, and assured that it can return any time that it is needed. If the protective part is willing, the follow-up question is, how do you feel toward the previously rejected part now? The patient is likely to say something like, I wonder why it's so sad or vengeful, etc. This sets the stage for getting to know the part better. For example, by inquiring how odd it is and how it came to feel the way it does. Once a patient manifests a critical mass of self, this kind of dialogue begins to take place spontaneously. At this point, it's important for the therapist to step aside and just keep an eye out for other parts that might interfere, or make occasional empathetic comments or ask questions like, what do you say to the part about that? Or, where do you want to go now? Or, what feels like the right next step? As well as the ubiquitous self-detecting question, How do you feel toward that part now? A Life in Parts Joan came to see me to help her manage her uncontrollable temper tantrums and to deal with her guilt about her numerous affairs, most recently with her tennis coach. As she put it in our first session, I go from being a kick-ass professional woman to a whimpering child to a furious bitch to a pitiless eating machine in the course of ten minutes. I have no idea which of these I really am. By this point in the session, Joan had already critiqued the prints on my wall, my rickety furniture, and my messy desk. Offense was her best defense. She was preparing to get hurt again. I'd probably let her down, as so many people had before. She knew that for therapy to work, she'd have to make herself vulnerable, so she had to find out if I could tolerate her anger, fear, and sorrow. I realized that the only way to counter her defensiveness was by showing a high level of interest in the details of her life, demonstrating unwavering support for the risks she took in talking with me, and accepting the parts she was most ashamed of. I asked Joan if she had noticed the part of herself that was critical. She acknowledged that she had— and I asked her how she felt toward that critic. This key question allowed her to begin to separate from that part and to access herself. Joan responded that she hated the critic because it reminded her of her mother. When I asked her what that critical part might be protecting, her anger subsided and she became more curious and thoughtful. I wonder why she finds it necessary to call me some of the same names that my mother used to call me and worse. She talked about how scared she had been of her mom growing up, and how she felt that she never could do anything right. The critic was obviously a manager. Not only was it protecting Joan from me, it was trying to preempt her mother's criticism. Over the next few weeks, Joan told me that she had been sexually molested by her mother's boyfriend, probably around the time she was in the first or second grade. She thought She'd been ruined for intimate relationships. While she was demanding and critical of her husband, for whom she lacked any sexual desire, she was passionate and reckless in her love affairs. But the affairs always ended in a similar way. In the middle of a lovemaking session, she would suddenly become terrified and curl up into a ball, whimpering like a little girl. These scenes left her confused and disgusted, and afterward she could not bear to have anything more to do with her lover. Like Marilyn in Chapter 8, Joan told me that she had learned to make herself disappear when she was being molested, floating above the scene as if it were happening to some other girl. Pushing the molestation out of her mind had enabled Joan to have a normal school life of sleepovers, girlfriends, and team sports. The trouble began in adolescence when she developed her pattern of frigid contempt for boys who treated her well and having casual sex that left her humiliated and ashamed. She told me that bulimia for her was what orgasms must be for other people, and having sex with her husband for her was what vomiting must be for others. While specific memories of her abuse were split off, dissociated, she unwittingly kept reenacting them. I did not try to explain to her why she felt so angry, guilty, or shut down. She already thought of herself as damaged goods. In therapy, as in memory processing, Pendulation, the gradual approach that I discovered in Chapter 13, is central. For Joan to be able to deal with her misery and hurt, we would have to recruit her own strength and self-love, enabling her to heal herself. This meant focusing on her many inner resources and reminding myself that I could not provide her with the love and caring she had missed as a child. If, as a therapist, teacher, or mentor, you try to fill the holes of early deprivation. You come up against the fact that you are the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place. The therapy would focus on Joan's relationship with her parts rather than with me. Meeting the managers. As Joan's treatment progressed, we identified many different parts that were in charge at different times an aggressive childlike part that threw tantrums, a promiscuous adolescent part, a suicidal part, an obsessive manager, a prissy moralist, and so on. As usual, we met the managers first. Their job was to prevent humiliation and abandonment and to keep her organized and safe. Some managers may be aggressive, like Jones' critic, while others are perfectionistic, or reserved, careful not to draw too much attention to themselves. They may tell us to turn a blind eye to what is going on, and keep us passive to avoid risk. Internal managers also control how much access we have to emotions, so that the self-system doesn't get overwhelmed. It requires an enormous amount of energy to keep the system under control. A single flirtatious comment may trigger several parts simultaneously one that becomes intensely sexually aroused, another filled with self-loathing, a third that tries to calm things down by self-cutting. Other managers create obsessions and distractions or deny reality altogether. But each part should be approached as an internal protector who maintains an important defensive position. Managers carry huge burdens of responsibility and usually are in over their heads. Some managers are extremely competent, Many of my patients hold responsible positions, do outstanding professional jobs, and can be superbly attentive parents. Joan's critical manager undoubtedly contributed to her success as an ophthalmologist. I have had numerous patients who were highly skilled teachers or nurses. While their colleagues may have experienced them as a bit distant or reserved, they would probably have been astonished to discover that their exemplary co-workers engaged in self-mutilation, eating disorders, or bizarre sexual practices. Gradually, Joan started to realize that it is normal to simultaneously experience conflicting feelings or thoughts, which gave her more confidence to face the task ahead. Instead of believing that hate consumed her entire being, she learned that only a part of her felt paralyzed by it. However, after a negative evaluation at work, Joan went into a tailspin, berating herself for not protecting herself, then feeling clingy, weak, and powerless. When I asked her to see where that powerless part was located in her body, and how she felt toward it, she resisted. She told me she couldn't stand that whiny, incompetent girl who made her feel embarrassed and contemptuous of herself. I suspected that this part held much of the memory of her abuse and I decided not to pressure her at this point. She left my office withdrawn and upset. The next day she raided the refrigerator and then spent hours vomiting up her food. When she returned to my office, she told me she wanted to kill herself, and was surprised that I seemed genuinely curious and non-judgmental, and that I did not condemn her for either her bulimia or her suicidality. When I asked her what parts were involved, the critic came back and blurted out, She is disgusting. When she asked that part to step back, the next part said, Nobody will ever love me, followed again by the critic, who told me that the best way to help her would be to ignore all that noise and to increase her medications. Clearly, in their desire to protect her injured parts, these managers were unintentionally doing her harm so I kept asking them what they thought would happen if they stepped back. Joan answered, People will hate me, and I will be all alone and out in the street. This was followed by a memory. Her mother had told her that if she disobeyed, she would be put up for adoption and never see her sisters or her dog again. When I asked her how she felt about that scared girl inside, she cried and said that she felt bad for her. Now herself was back, and I was confident that we had calmed the system down. But this session turned out to be too much too soon. Putting out the flames. The following week, Joan missed her appointment. We had triggered her exiles, and her firefighters went on a rampage. As she told me later, the evening after we talked about her terror of being put into foster care, she felt as if she were going to blast out of herself. She went to a bar and picked up a guy. Coming home late, drunk and disheveled, she refused to talk to her husband and fell asleep in the den. The next morning she acted as if nothing had happened. Firefighters will do anything to make emotional pain go away. Aside from sharing the task of keeping the exiles locked up, they are the opposite of managers. Managers are all about staying in control, while firefighters will destroy the house in order to extinguish the fire. The struggle between uptight managers and out-of-control firefighters will continue until the exiles, which carry the burden of the trauma, are allowed to come home and be cared for. Anyone who deals with survivors will encounter those firefighters. I've met firefighters who shop, drink, play computer games addictively, have impulsive affairs, or exercise compulsively. A sordid encounter can blunt the abused child's horror and shame, if only for a couple of hours.